Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks that you teach us um, through all of your word. Father, we pray that you'll open our hearts to your spirit as Andrew brings a reading and Duncan brings a sermon this morning. Pray, Father, that uh, even though, as it says in the outline, that we are saints behaving badly, that, Father, you'll unite us as a church in this place, that you'll unite us as Christians in this community, that you'll unite us as believers throughout the world, that we may bring glory to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Andrew's going to now bring the Bible ring to us uh, from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 18, and then Duncan's going to bring the sermon to us. Thank you, Andrew. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Thanks, mate. Well... Me again, apologies. Get a bit of me today. Um, but maybe you've heard the joke. There's a, maybe you've heard this joke about a man shipwrecked on an island. Uh, he gets shipwrecked, he's alone on the island, and a few years later he gets saved by this group who come and uh, save him. A uh, passing ship rescues him, and they find three huts on the island. You heard this joke? Uh, and they, they, these guys who rescue him say, what are these three huts about? And the man says, oh, that one there is where I live, uh, and that one there is where I go to church. And, uh, the, and these, uh, the guys rescuing him ask, well, what about that third one over there? I said, oh, that's where I used to go to church, but I didn't like the music there. <laughs> it, it, well, it highlights, doesn't it? It highlights how prone we are to divisions and factions, even alone on a desert island. <laughs> we can't escape them. Uh, but of course, if you've ever been in a fractured and divided church, you'll know it's no joke to go through. It's deeply discouraging. It can be really traumatic. It fosters an environment that uh, no one seeking for God will be drawn to. Uh, It is tragic when a church fractures uh, because it goes against what that community really is, what it really is. We saw this last week, right? The church is a gathering of God's saints in Jesus Christ, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord God's plan has always been to create a united people in Christ. Uh, We saw that um, uh, as we went through, uh, uh, last term we went through the series on the end of everything and hopefully that was something that came out to you as well as we did that. Uh, Paul, we we looked at back then how Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 that uh, he talks about God's plan to unite all things under Christ. 
And do you remember that great vision at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22, this great vision uh, of this great city with people from every tribe and nation and tongue gathered together in worship of their Lord. This great vision of unity. So this has always been God's plan, but our world is so fractured and divided, isn't it? Our world is so divided, we can't seem to shake it. Uh, and it, there's lots of people trying to do something about this, and uh, lots of money that's gone into this, uh, just, there's this incredible technological investment in trying to unite us. Um, uh, Facebook's mission is, do you know what it is? Uh, to bring the world closer together. <laughs> Actually, did you hear, um, they've just changed their name to Meta, which sort of, this thing that sits over everything, which to me is a bit ominous. <laughs> but but uh, if you know anything about, uh, or maybe you uh, are active in Facebook, this is certainly my experience, I'm not sure that it brings us together. Um, yeah, it, we're kinda, it's driven by these algorithms that shape us into our little echo chambers that reinforce all of our worst instincts and fears and lead us to kind of tribalism and fracturing. But this unity is what God is on about. He is going to perfect it in the future. But this unity that we looked at uh, in that last series and we're looking at today, this unity was always also meant to be seen and experienced and shown off to the world in the gathering of his saints, his church. Uh, the church is meant to be like this display home to the world about the kingdom of God. Um, just showing what this future new creation can look like, inviting the world to see the transforming power of Jesus. But too often, this isn't the case. Uh, tragically, and, and tragically, actually, what you find as you read through the New Testament is it's always actually been this way. This isn't a new phenomenon. Um, it's always been there. It's all through the New Testament. And this church in Corinth that we're looking at is a prime example of this. Uh, it's just 20 years after Jesus has died and risen again. Uh, just Actually, just a few short years after Paul had visited Corinth and planted this church. Uh, that's the kind of time frame we're talking. A few short years. And they've already descended into this tribalism fracturing. Well, what are we going to do about this? What were they to do about this? Just give up on unity, kind of settle into a long-term cynicism. <laughs> that's one option. But Paul is writing this letter precisely because he hasn't given up on this church. Because what Jesus is doing in his people is to unite them together here and now as well as in eternity. And so as we looked at last week, he starts by reminding them of their identity, of who they are in Christ. These saints who God has poured out his grace on in Christ, who the faithful God has called into fellowship with his son, um, and now what we're going to see in the, as we turn to this part of the letter is Paul turns to the direct issue. He kind of directly faces this issue, starts to deal with it. He makes this heartfelt appeal in verse 10. Uh, it should be on the screen there. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. Uh, that little word divisions literally means to rip or tear something up. Uh, it's where, where we get the word schism from. You might have heard of that. 
I forgot to bring out my prop. I have a prop today just to keep us all awake. So I'll run and get it, and I need a volunteer as well. Anyone want to help? Yeah, off you come. Come on. All right, Caleb. Good on you. Okay, so this is Caleb. Everyone can say hi to Caleb. Uh, okay, so what we're going to do, Caleb, here is the Church of God in Corinth. And what I want you to do, and this is what, uh, what I want you to do is go like this. I'm going to start here and rip the whole thing in half, okay? There we go. There's the Church of God in Corinth. That's the kind of image that Paul has in mind, this tearing of the church apart. Now, what, can you take this and this special tape and go back and tape it together as well as you can over with get your parents to help? while I'm still going. So take it back to your seat. And can the tape be on the front side? That'd be good. Awesome. Uh, okay. There's this ripping of the church uh, apart. Now, uh, it, it, no one's going to care about some cardboard being ripped up, but imagine that cardboard. We've got a few artists in our church. Imagine that cardboard was a precious painting that you had spent hours and hours and hours on. Or some, some, some really precious item that you had that I came up and just ripped in half. You would feel pretty heartbroken, right? You would feel pretty devastated by that. Well, friends, the church is God's special creation. It's his artwork showing off his glory and goodness to the world. And to tear it up is a serious thing. Uh, it's so serious that in this letter to this church where there are so many problems, it's the first thing Paul um, talks about first thing he tears, turns his attention to. Now, we need to think carefully about what's going on here. Paul calls them to be united, to be perfectly united in mind and heart, in mind and thoughts. Uh, what kind of unity is going on here? What kind of unity is Paul talking about? Hold on to that. I'll, I'll get you up in a minute to bring it back. Um, what he's not saying is that he wants the Corinthians to be kind of mindless clones of one another or of, him, of, of himself, some of this unquestioning herd that just goes wherever it's told. Uh, that's one way you can get unity, right? You can get unity by enforcing it, by enforcing everyone to be clones of one another. What we're going to see, though, as we read through the letter in, the, in uh, the coming years, probably, is that Paul has this really strong concept of the diversity of Christ's church, uh, in chapter 7, he talks about this um, freedom in terms of relationships and to marry or not marry. In, in chapter 10, he talks about uh, how people will make, are going to make different decisions uh, about eating food sacrificed to idols, depending on the context. Uh, in chapter 12, he pictures the church as this body with many different parts that are all different to one another. There's this beautiful diversity. There's no sense for Paul that this unity he's talking about is a kind of blank monochrome uniformity. On the other hand, so it's not that, on the other hand, Paul's not just saying, just focus on being nice and warm to one another. Don't worry about all that other stuff like truth and doctrine and morality. Just be united in warm fuzzies. Um, the whole reason that Paul is writing this letter is because there are things the Corinthians are saying and doing that are wrong. They don't match who they are in Christ. He's urging them to change and you find out, as in other parts of the New Testament, uh, there are actually some issues over which we do need to divide. Um, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about some uh, the church, he urges the church to actually um, 
break fellowship with a man who is proudly and unrepentantly engaging in a relationship with his stepmother. Uh, and he, he says this to the church so that he might be brought back uh, to repentance and restored to fellowship. Uh, in other letters, Paul writes about the danger of false teachers who disrupt and who rip up the church with teaching contrary to the sound doctrine of Christ. So what, what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to uh, give a, uh, present attention to you. What is this unity that Paul is talking about? It's not uniformity, but it's not an anything-goes kind of unity either. It's a little bit more complex than just saying either just toe the line or just be nice to each other. Paul appeals to them, do you notice that? He appeals to them to be perfectly united in mind and thought. There's a way of thinking, a common mind, that he urges the Corinthians to willingly, freely, consciously unite around. Uh, you get a hint of it in this, this, um, uh, this, this verse. Paul appeals to them as brothers and sisters in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This unity they share, this common mind they are to pursue is all to do with Jesus. But put that thought on hold, we'll come back to that. Uh, Paul goes on to kind of fill out more what this problem in Corinth is. Fill it out a bit more. This division, uh, it doesn't seem to be primarily in this church, it doesn't seem to be primarily about issues of truth or, or clear kind of moral issues that Paul's stressing here. It's more about personalities, as you read on. Verse 11. Uh, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Uh, that's another name for the apostle Peter. Uh, still another, I follow Christ. So you can kind of imagine the conversation over morning tea at Trinity Church Corinth. Okay, So just cast your mind back. That's, that's a bit obnoxious, isn't it? Um, the Church of God in Corinth is better. <laughs> Imagine the conversation over morning tea after their, their regular service, and you've got a group of older saints reminiscing about the good old days when Paul was with them. Things were much, so much better when he was here. He ran things the way I like. I'm on Team Paul. And then maybe there's a group of teens over there talking about Apollos. Ah, oh, remember when he came? He was so vibrant. He really knew how to preach. Now, I heard a story about this old, that old guy, Paul. He was so boring that he once caused a guy to fall asleep and fall out a window and die while he was preaching. Not Apollos. Apollos was on fire. He was a really spiritual guy. I'm on Team Apollos. Maybe there's another group. Oh, remember when Peter came to visit us? Okay, Paul and Apollos, they're all right, but Peter... He actually knew Jesus. He lived with him for years. He was the real deal. And do you know how many followers he has around Jerusalem? Uh, you might, and, and I don't want to name drop here, but you might not know this, but he once invited me around to his place to talk theology. I'm definitely on Team Peter. And then there's this Jesus group. It's a bit of a strange thing to throw in there, isn't it? This Jesus group. It seems like this group were probably saying something like, oh, you guys and your petty human leaders, we're the proper Christians. We follow Jesus, but we're a bit suspicious of you. So they were, it seems like probably they were using the name of Jesus to kind of separate themselves out from the plebs around them. 
But you see the sort of thing that's going on in, maybe in this church. There's no suggestion that any of these leaders encouraged or set up this kind of thing. There's no suggestion of that. Uh, they didn't encourage it, but the Corinthians fell into this kind of tribalism nevertheless. But friends, it's important to see what's underlying this, and we, we touched on this in the first week of our series. It's important to see what's underlying this. We touched on the fact that a lot of the problems facing this church were caused by the fact, the way in which they were being shaped more by Corinth than by Christ. They were being shaped more by this, the culture around them than by Jesus. Uh, and we saw that Corinth was this city that loved impressive speakers, that prized climbing the social ladder uh, through attaching yourself to a guru, to this powerful personality. And underlying this issue in the church what, that was that they had let those values seep into how they related to each other. So, uh, this is an important question for us. Uh, we may not sort of think we're exactly the same situation as these guys in Corinth, and we're not. But how might we be more shaped by our culture than by Christ in how we relate to one another? And how might that cause these kind of ugly divisions among us? That's, that's an important question to reflect on. I want to give a few suggestions just to sort of spark your own thinking, perhaps. Uh, we have more access to any sort of teaching, all kinds of leaders today, than we ever have in history. That, that um, lump in your pocket, that phone in your pocket, uh, can connect you with an almost infinite amount of books, podcasts, bloggers, YouTubers, preachers, spiritual gurus... The list just goes on and on. Uh, and some of it is good, solid content. Some of it. Uh, we live in what uh, one author, a society one author calls um, uh, a society of theological affluence. Sort <laughs> um, of interesting sort of phrase. Uh, why would you need to go to church when you can get your latest spiritual hit for the week by listening to the latest Tim Keller podcast? He's a much better preacher than me. I mentioned this last week. Um, one way our culture shapes how we see ourselves is to see ourselves as primarily as consumers. And I read a, an article this week I wanted to share just a, a, a sort of, uh, some quotes from. It made this comment. If church then is mostly about getting the best of whatever spiritual thing you're looking for, you'll always be unsatisfied. Uh, constantly trying new churches and perhaps eventually giving up or turning online the best preachers and the best worship music are on iTunes, after all, not in your local church. That's true. Uh, you can get better preachers and better music elsewhere. The author goes on to talk about how Christians are not consumers, we're servants, and how Christianity isn't just about content, it's about an embodied community, a physical gathering. And I, I found this quote helpful. In a lonely, disembodied world, the church offers a beautiful alternative, an embodied community where at least once a week you are in the physical presence of your church family. It's a place where the manipulative filters of life online fall away and you can be known in a truer sense, warts and all. It's a place where our real struggles and weaknesses are harder to hide 
It's a place where healing, emotional, spiritual, physical, can happen. It's a place where you can do physical things together. Sing, stand, sit, kneel, hug. This is written before COVID. Uh, <laughs> attempt awkward bro handshakes or maybe fist bumps. Um, even eat and drink the communion elements. You can get none of this from podcasts and apps and audiobooks. So one way the values of our culture may bring divisions in our church is by bringing that kind of consumer mentality that ends up driving us apart from one another. There's plenty of other dangers. Uh, there's danger that we politicise our faith. So we say real Christians only vote X or Y. Uh, there's a danger of cliques where you form a, a group of people who are your sort of people who perhaps you think are the really spiritual ones, the ones who really know what's going on, the enlightened ones. There's lots of options here. Lots of dangers to be aware of about this tendency in our hearts um, to divide. But what I want to focus on now is to go to the next little part of this, and I want to focus on the solution that Paul holds out here for us. Uh, he gives it briefly here in this passage. It's just a few spots that we kind of glimpse this bright light of Paul's solution. It's what he's going to go on to really focus on and expand on. We'll keep reading it in the coming weeks. But he starts by pointing out the ridiculousness of the situation. Verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? And of course the answer to all those is no. <clears throat> Christ isn't divided. Paul wasn't crucified for you. You were baptised into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not in the name of Paul. So it seems behind this, one of the ways that these Corinthians were dividing themselves was kind of attaching themselves to the person who baptised them, uh, the great one who they were baptised by. So it was a kind of sign of status and importance if you were baptised by one of these great ones. Now, we kind of tend to think of baptism in, in individualistic terms. It's a public declaration of my faith. Uh, in the Bible, though, bap baptism has a more corporate kind of element to it. You're baptised into a new identity, a new community. You're baptised into Christ and therefore into his family. It's a way of identifying yourself with him and with his people. And so if, with that in mind, you can see how much of a perversion it is to use baptism as a way of identifying yourself, not with Christ but with the person who baptised you, as if you were baptised into them and their community, into the Paul party. So you can kind of climb up, puff yourself up by association to him. No. And you notice this lovely way Paul undercuts this in verse 14. He says, I thank God that I did not baptise any of you, oh, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptised in my name. Oh, hang on, uh, verse 16. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, Oh, look, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. Uh, see what he does there? This thing that the Corinthians had put so much identity in, uh, self-importance in, who they were baptised by, Paul says it barely rates a mention in his memory. He can't even remember who he baptised. It's just not important to him. But what is important? What is important? Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. 
not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, how are we going with our visual aid over there? Do you want to do you want to run it up? Thanks, mate. Now, I don't know if I did. Uh, I, I think I must should have used a different colour for the tape. But hopefully, you want to just come up here and hold it up in front of everyone. What is it that is going to bind this church together? What, are you, what is it, Caleb? The gospel. The gospel. The gospel is going to knit this church together. It's the gospel. Thanks, mate. I'll take that. I don't know. It... You get the idea. <laughs> uh, in all their divisions, what is it that Paul urges them to agree on? What is it that they are to be perfectly united in mind and thought about? It's the gospel. The gospel. The good news. This great announcement of who Jesus is and what he has done in his death and resurrection. The news that was foreshadowed by the prophets in the Old Testament, that was witnessed to by the apostles, the news that we have in the pages of the Bible, God's infallible word. Paul says he proclaimed this news to them, not to impress them, not to kind of puff himself up, not in a Corinthian way, self-serving wisdom and eloquence, not in a way that would draw attention to him. That, he says that would empty the cross of its power. I don't think that means the cross would literally become powerless. I think what Paul means there is to proclaim this gospel in a way that puffs and draws attention to the one proclaiming it means when, when people hear that, they're not going to be hearing good news about Jesus. They'll be left thinking, oh, what a great speaker that guy was. What an impressive person. So Jesus isn't going to be the focus. Even though what's be, here's what's been talked about, but the focus will actually just be human-centred pride. So, friends, here is Paul's, the start of Paul's solution to their divisions, which we're going to get filled out more and more in the coming weeks. Not a kind of enforced uniformity, just become unthinking minions, um, but neither this kind of vague, undefined unity of just be nice to each other, he says, pursue unity in the gospel, in its truth and beauty and goodness and power. It's a vision of a community where each person, each of us, is humbly committed to changing our own thinking, to changing our own speaking and acting, so that they line up more and more with the gospel. That's the kind of unity he has in mind where you and I have this commitment to unity in the gospel that has come to us that we have received in the word. And if we do that, it doesn't mean we won't in love confront each other when needed. It doesn't mean we won't have thoughtful disagreements about non-central issues like secondary issues, non-gospel issues, um, kind of like how Paul talks about baptism here. But it does mean... We'll relate to each other in a way that looks, well, in, in a way that looks to the world as weak and foolish and unimpressive, but in a way that is actually the mighty power of God to save, the humble self-giving of the cross of Christ. What might that look like? Hold on for next week, where we'll look at how Paul goes on. But for today, uh, just let me finish. I'm going to read out. Verse 10 again, Paul's words, and I've added the, to the end of it slightly to give the sense of it. Let me finish with this. 
And let's hear this to ourselves, Trinity Church Victor Harbour, as this gathering of saints um, gathered together in Christ, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you, and, uh, in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thoughts in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Our God, we know the tendencies of our own hearts and we confess them to you today. Lord, we also know your great plan and purpose for your church this great, diverse gathering of people from every tribe and background and nation around the throne of Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that our church might be in some way a true expression of that, learning more and more to live in gospel unity. Please keep us from these divisions and factions uh, that may tear us apart. Lord, by your spirit, help us to submit our own thinking and doing and speaking and relating to the truth of your word, so that we might be united in it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.